That's, uh, that's probably a, a pretty fair cross-section of people from a few years ago. Uh, maybe some who've never even contemplated matters of faith. Maybe uh, those represented there who were raised in the faith and now uh, are, cur- you know, are currently what we call in certain circles in, in 2021 deconstructing. Uh, there were people I talked to last week who never heard that term before. And there were people I talked to last week who were already sick of that term. They're having a lot of conversations with people in their circle who are disillusioned, disenchanted, uh, disinterested in church and faith. They're deconstructing. And as I said last week, there, there might be some, actually some good reason to deconstruct or shed some of the baggage, uh, some of the subculture stuff that upon closer scrutiny really um, has nothing to do with the Christianity that Jesus introduced. And so in that sense, maybe it's a good thing. But here's what I'm deeply concerned about. Um, Those who are deconstructing and taking no effort or time or thought to reconstruct, uh, it's easy to tear down, not as easy to build back up. And so you could see it in that video, people who just weren't interested in the big existential questions of life. And I would argue that we are invited as Christians to wrestle with this stuff. Paul says, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. It's a, a, a lifetime of working it out, actually. So in this series, I I said my three goals is that I I would like to, one, explain the Christian faith in a way that hopefully makes sense to non-Christians. I'd like to address some of the most common objections to the faith. And uh, I'd like to do this all in a way that hopefully will will benefit long-term, long-time Christians. And, And by the way, all of this, I, I would like NAC to be a safe place where we can actually come with our doubts and our objections and our deconstruction. Because I tell you this, it's safe to come to God with all of that. Um, and for those of you who'd like to go maybe even a little deeper uh, and have a resource at the ready, uh, some of the teaching I'm boring this morning is from James Emery White's uh, Christianity for People Who Aren't Christians. Um, he's able to cover things in, in more depth than we have time for with all the footnotes and, and references. And uh, you can get it cheaper from us than you can from Amazon, $20. So speaking of existential questions to wrestle with, how about this one? Who is God? I once heard the story of a little girl who was drawing a, a picture at school and her teacher came over and asked what she was drawing. She said, oh, I'm drawing a picture of God. And the teacher said, honey, you know, uh, nobody actually really knows what God looks like. And the little girl said, yeah, well, they will when I'm done with the picture. Um, <laughs> whether you accept or reject the existence of God, most of us have some picture of, of a God that we've drawn in our minds, usually based on a series of ideas or past experiences from our life. Now the question is, is it a good picture? Is it a right picture? Is it a fair one? 
And particularly, are we getting God's character right? His nature right? What, what kind of God are we picturing? Is he good? Does he have integrity? Is he loving? Because many aren't so sure. In fact, most people these days who reject the idea of God don't actually reject the possibility of his existence. They're rejecting the God as they understand him to be. Um, The God they think they know. And I mean, if he's so strong and powerful, why is the world such a screwed up place? And if he's supposed to be good and loving, then why is there so much suffering in the world? And why has it gone on for so long? Why doesn't God step in and stop it? Have you heard a variation of that question at some point? Have you asked that question yourself? I have. I've heard people say, when I look at the world and how it's being run, how it's playing out, you know, if, if I were God, I could do better. Uh, and one, one blogger put it this way, if I was God, the following words and phrases would not exist. War, hunger, drugs, murder, disease, poverty, rape, poor, fight, genocide, famine, jealousy, slavery, homeless, conflict, hate, natural disaster, greed, crime, oppression, victim, gun, third world, accident, weapon, atrocity, bomb, abortion, molestation, dictator, steal, mental illness, sorrow, kill, sadness, loneliness, death, anger, apology, old, need, evil, sick, cancer. And the last word he put down is hell. That's what he sees when he looks at the world. That's the lens he views God through. But is there more to the story? Rabbit trail. I've watched 20 years, 40 seasons of the reality show Survivor. (laughs) Haven't missed an episode. Please stop judging me with your eyes right now. You think I'm happy about this? Think I'm proud? I've said to Vicky, I, I think I would like to go on Survivor. I feel I could win. And this is like a put her foot down moment for her. No way. She will not allow it, especially as a pastor. And I'm like, I'll show people you can do this without lying, cheating, or manipulating. And she reminds me, it doesn't matter what I do. The people who have all the control are the editors. Uh, If they want to present you as the villain, guess what? You'll be the villain. Um, They're going to edit you to look like the villain. And it reminds me of this series of YouTube videos I saw. You've probably seen some of them too, where they take movie trailers like Mary Poppins. And through creative editing and a different soundtrack, they, t- they turned it into a horror movie trailer. <laughs> or they take the Shining trailer, turn it into a rom-com. Have you, have you seen some of these? Here's one they did of a modern uh, Christmas classic. And with just a few simple edits, it changes everything. Watch this. 
Yeah. Excuse me. I'm here to see a Walter Hobbs. Dad! I walked all day and night to find you. It's a little complicated, but it's nothing Honey. that we can't handle. Honey. Did that edit reveal the true nature of the story or the true nature of the characters? Uh, could it be that we have a distorted edit of God in our heads uh, based on some selective scenes of the world in which we live? It reminds me of how this former chaplain at Harvard would talk to his students and they'd come in his office and say, I don't believe in God. And he would say, Sit down and tell me about the kind of God that you don't believe in. I probably don't believe in that God either. Let's talk about it, and specifically the realities of evil and suffering. It's, it's the most spiritually persistent question that people ask across every world religion, every philosophy, every worldview. Why is there evil and suffering in the world? Now, this isn't a question that just the Christian faith has got to answer. If you reject Christianity because of the existence of suffering in the world, then you need to reject every philosophy, every worldview, every ideology, every religion, because the reality of suffering is not just unique for Christianity to explain. I don't care if you're Buddhist or Muslim or Mormon or Scientologist or Hindu. Um, Everyone's got to answer the question about why this is such a screwed up world, except the atheist, right? No, uh, even the atheists. In fact, it's actually one of the biggest arguments against atheism. Atheists may not believe in God, but they believe in the inherent goodness of, of human beings and the inevitable you know, upward progression of naturalistic evolution, which means that human beings should be becoming increasingly good and noble, peaceful, humane, through the advances of education and politics and technology. So in theory, you know, we should be a better and better people every day. But we're not. But there's a reason this question about evil and suffering is often laid solely at the feet of Christianity more than other religions because the Bible teaches that our God is, is all-powerful, um, able to do anything he wants. The, 
the big seminary word is omnipotent. Um, and the Bible teaches that God is thoroughly good, not mean, not vindictive, not petty or, or capricious, you know? And yet, bad things happen. There, there is suffering in the world. And for many people, they just can't square that circle, so to speak. They can't reconcile this apparent dichotomy. If God is good and all-powerful, he shouldn't allow bad things to happen. But since they do happen, many people decide either God isn't good or he isn't all-powerful. So, so let me try to, to give the answer the Christian faith gives to the question of, of evil and suffering. And then you can compare it to, to any other answer you want. And it's really more of a story than some sterile, philosophical textbook answer. So um, let me see if I can tell you that story. It, it almost begins with once upon a time, except this one says, in the beginning, in the beginning, God made us to love us. Now, just don't race past that, okay? Because that's everything. That's the heart of the story, that um, in this great human drama, that is unfolding around us, there was a God who created us and he created us for the purpose of relationship and for reciprocal love. We are tenderly crafted and designed each as as an individual for the purpose of being related to and known and cherished. Now, obviously, if it's, it's, if it's going to be that kind of relationship, God had to make it real and authentic, not something fabricated. And that's why he didn't just make robots who were programmed to love him back. You know, we were given the freedom of choice to um, live fully conscious, self-determining lives, even to the point of whether we choose to respond to the Creator's love. God didn't trick us into some uh, forced obedience against our will. Instead, He decided to woo us, uh, knowing that in doing so, we might very well reject His love. But, But this was the only way to have a relationship be a relationship. This is the dynamic at the heart of, of the human experience. We were created for a relationship with God, and we either enter into that relationship or we don't. God could have made me love him. Uh, what if he had? What would that relationship be like? His with mine and mine with him. It would be kind of meaningless, wouldn't it? That's a master-slave relationship, which is no relationship at all. If I had given Vicky love potion number nine and when we first met, I'm sure her fawning adoration would have been a nice ego boost for a while. But it would have quickly become hollow, knowing you know, it wasn't real, it wasn't intrinsic, it wasn't you know, from the depth of her being. Um, it wasn't a mature love. It wouldn't have been chosen. You know, it's good to know that her fawning adoration of me is real. 
Someone laughed a little too hard there, and it hurt my feelings. God uses words like friendship and family and sons and daughters and heirs, relationship words. And it's supposed to be reciprocal and sometimes rocky, but always real. So when he created me, when he created you, he had to take the risk of setting us free. The first instance of freedom uh, was, as you might expect, made by the first humans, Adam and Eve. Now, we could have a fun conversation about how God um, got to that first pair and all of the science and everything related to creation. And, And that's why you should consider getting the book. It covers that in a simple way. In a helpful way, but let's let's skip over that for today and start right with the story of Adam and Eve, which is where our story really begins. When they were created and placed in this perfect garden, God gave them just one directive. I'll, I'll paraphrase here, but it was basically, look around at everything I've made. It's paradise. You can run free, and you can create, and you can dream and build. You can drink from any stream and eat from any tree, just not that one. The whole planet is yours, just not that one single tree. Don't eat from that. Now, it could have been anything that God set aside, I think. I believe the point was he set up something to create choice. He set up something to create freedom. Will you follow me or not? Will you let me lead you or not? Are you going to obey me or not? It's, it's all your call. I want what is between us to be real. So let's use a tree. And then in the midst of that perfection, in the midst of all they had, they, they chose to eat from the one thing they were asked not to. And they made that conscious, purposeful decision to go against the relationship. They could have a life of intimacy with God, living in a world under his leadership and direction and protection, or they could have a life of separation from God living in a world outside of his leadership and outside of his protection and direction. Plan A or plan B, and they chose plan B. And what that did was it ushered in sin onto the stage and all the consequences that come from sin and from evil. Almost like, you know, unleashing a disease into the human race that spread. And we've been making that same decision ever since. It'd be easy to lay all the blame at the feet of our first parents. Every single one of us, though, um, have made that same choice over and over again, just like Adam and Eve. Every single one of us in a one way or another, small way or a big way, has chosen to go against God, to sin, to disobey. So... What does that mean? Evil and suffering is simply what erupts when we live apart from God. It's what flows into the world apart from God. It's everything that happens to the world and to our life apart from God. When we choose against God, all hell breaks loose, quite literally. 
the, the decision the first humans made to reject God's leadership and reject the ongoing intimacy of a relationship with him, it radically altered God's original design for how he would operate and live in this world. Theologians, you know, have termed this the fall and, and talk about how we now live in a fallen world. Uh, we live in a world that is not the way God intended it to be. And we've been turning away from God ever since. And the results of our collective choice to turn away from God runs so deep that it isn't just moral evil that we face, but natural evil as well. You could say the whole world is sick. The Apostle Paul talks about this in, in the New Testament book of Romans where he says, all of creation is groaning under the collective choice of our sins. Earthquakes and tidal waves and mudslides and flash floods, wildfires, birth defects, famine, cancer, AIDS, the novel coronavirus. If I said the name Philip Yancey, would anybody know who I was talking about? Right on, okay. Um, he wrote, the pain and suffering and heartache is a huge cosmic scream that something is wrong, that the entire human condition is out of whack. It raises a provocative idea. Now hear me out. That God is not behind what is tragic with the world, much less responsible for it. People are. And it reminds me of when um, the London Times asked for an essay on the topic, what is wrong with the world? And one of the most famous journalists of that time, uh, a Christian named G.K. Chesterton, he simply wrote, Dear Sir, in response to your article, What's Wrong with the World? I am. The end. I mean, the shortest, maybe the most profound essay ever written. And so my writing hero, uh, Philip Yancey, um, if you go into my office, you'll, you'll see almost every book he's ever written on my shelves. Because as a young man who was trying to figure out his faith and trying to wrestle with faith, uh, trying to distinguish my own beliefs from, you know, riding the coattails of my parents' faith, it seemed at the time the Christian marketplace was filled with sort of like, don't worry, be happy, Christianity. A lot of happy, happy, joy, joy stuff. Um, some version of like, it's not for us to wonder why, just kind of shut up and believe type books. And I'm sure Phil Biancy wasn't the only one writing or dealing with tough questions uh, that I was interested in. But I do know that his work came into my life at just the right time. You know, titles like, Disappointment with God, or uh, where is God when it hurts, or um, what good is God? And he's writing about doubt and suffering and questioning assumptions. And I'm so grateful for his impact in my life. I got a chance to meet him. Uh, he looks like the, uh, the Christian Bob Ross or something there. Um, and he was contacted by a television producer around the time of of Princess Diana's death. Y'all remember 
when that happened, people of a certain age, you know, will remember that day very well. And so Philip is asked to appear on a show and explain how God could have possibly allowed such a tragic accident. And he was like, um, could it have been something to do with a drunk driver going 90 miles an hour in a narrow tunnel? Um, he asked the producer, like, how exactly do you think God was involved in that? And from this, Yancey reflected on how we often blame God for what we do or what others do. Uh, he, he told the story of when boxer uh, Ray Boom Boom Mancini, he, he killed a Korean boxer in a match in the ring. And uh, the athlete, he said at a press conference, he said, sometimes I wonder why God does the things he does. Like, why did he allow my fist to keep pummeling this innocent man? Um, or when in a letter to a Christian family therapist, a young woman wrote how she became pregnant while dating a boy, and she wanted to know why God allowed that to happen to her. Or when that South Carolina mother, uh, Susan Smith, uh, gave her official confession to pushing her two sons into a lake to drown. And she said as she released the car, um, she went running after it as it sped down the ramp, screaming, oh God, oh God, no, why did you let this happen? So Yancey writes, what exactly was the role that God played in a boxer thrashing his opponent, a teenager abandoning her virtue, or a mother drowning her children? God let us choose, and we did. Our self-destructive bent seems to know no ends. You know, historian Will Durant once observed at the time of the writing, at least, that in the last 3,600 years of recorded history, only 268 of them have been conflict-free without war on our planet. Folks, that's on us. And on a more personal level, here's how one psychologist described it. He wrote, we drink too much or gamble compulsively or allow pornography to control our minds. We drive too fast and work like there's no tomorrow. We challenge the boss disrespectfully and then blow up when he strikes back. We spend money we don't have and can't possibly repay. We fuss and fight at home and create misery. We toy with the dragon of infidelity. Then when the wages of those sins and foolishness come due, we turn our shocked faces up to heaven and cry, why me, Lord? In truth, we are suffering the natural consequences of dangerous behavior that is guaranteed to produce pain. So, why did God do it? Why did he create us if he knew pain and suffering would, would come with the creation? Not just you know, to each other, but pain and suffering for him as well. Because this is like an ulcer in God's stomach. God really does love. And there's this superficial idea floating around that, that the truth is that when you truly love, there is a risk. Um, isn't there? Like a risk of suffering, a, a, a risk of loss. 
a risk of rejection, but without the willingness to be wounded on the deepest level, there, there can't be authentic relationship on the deepest level. God's great longing is to commune with us for eternity. Uh, C.S. Lewis once wrote, to love at all is to be vulnerable. Love anything and your heart will certainly be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to make sure, <clears throat> sure of keeping it intact, you must give your heart to no one, not even to an animal. Those who have loved and lost a pet, you know, know what Lewis is talking about here, don't you? Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. The only place outside heaven where you can be perfectly safe from all the dangers of love is hell. So why doesn't God just step in and end all evil? We'll be glad he hasn't. If tonight God wiped out all evil, all wrongdoing, every person who committed harm against somebody else, how many of us do you think would see dawn? I I don't know if any of us would still be here at 12.01. I know I wouldn't. God could wipe out all evil, all suffering this, this very night. But he doesn't, and the reason he doesn't is because of his love for people like you, for people like me. He is exercising restraint. I read of a man who was in conflict with his 15-year-old daughter. He knew she was using birth control, and several nights she didn't even come home at all. And his parents, he and his wife, had tried you know, different forms of strategy and consequences and punishments, but nothing seemed to you know, make a difference. Their daughter had lied to them, manipulated them, deceived them, always found a way to turn the tables on them, blaming her behavior on them. And he said that he remembered standing in front of the window in his living room one night, staring out into the darkness, waiting for his daughter to come home. He was so angry with his daughter for the ways that she manipulated him and his wife and constantly tried to find ways to hurt them. He was so upset because he knew she was hurting herself more than anyone. And in that moment, he understood more than ever the passages in the Bible talking about how the people knew how to wound God and how God would cry out in pain. And yet, he said, when my daughter came home in the, in the wee hours of the morning, I wanted nothing in the world so much as to take her in my arms, to love her, to tell her I wanted the best for her. I was a helpless, lovesick father. Have you ever thought of God as a lovesick father, as a lovesick mother, 
a, a God who is standing in front of the window, gazing achingly into the darkness, waiting for his child to come home. But he isn't just waiting. He actually entered into this all-out search and rescue mission. He invested himself in the process of, of healing the wounds that come from our choices and by entering into the suffering process to be with us, Emmanuel, God with us, to help lift us out of it. The heart of the Christian faith is that God himself came to planet earth in human form in the person of Jesus and he suffered. He knew pain. He knew about rejection. He knows about hunger, injustice, cruelty because he's experienced suffering. Jesus on the cross was God entering into the reality of human suffering, experiencing it like we do in order to demonstrate that even when we used our free will to reject him, his love never ended. This was not suffering for its own sake, but suffering so that we might use our free will to choose again, only this time, making the right choice. Frederick Beekner put it this way, like a father saying about his sick child, I'll do anything to make you well. God finally calls his own bluff and does it. And he held out his hands and he took the nails for me and for you. The ultimate deliverance, the most significant healing, the most strategic rescue has come. Our greatest and most terrible affliction has been addressed. God has given us the greatest answer to our questions. He has given us himself. And he is going to keep giving himself to any and all who will turn to him until the end of time. And yes, time as we know it will come to an end. There's a verse in the Bible in 1 Thessalonians that says that there's coming a day when Jesus will come down from heaven with a shout, a commanding shout. Do you ever wonder what, what Jesus will shout? Will it just be a guttural, Rah! or will he actually shout something? I don't know what the answer to that is, but I wonder if what Jesus will shout in a loud voice is... Enough, enough suffering, enough starvation, enough death, enough indignity, enough depression and hopelessness, enough sickness and enough disease, enough. Uh, this is the story that you should know. This is how our story ends. And it raises the real question when it comes to our broken and screwed up world. Will pain and suffering drive you away from God or will it drive you to God? And please be clear, the whole reason it is being allowed and that enough hasn't been shouted yet is because he is hoping for people just like you to turn to him, to receive his love. You've been given this choice.
even now to return. You mean God endures all of that for me? Yeah, because he loves you. He's crazy about you. And that's the story of the Christian faith. I'm going to invite the band to come up. And I would say maybe that answer doesn't satisfy your skepticism as to why there's pain and suffering in the world. I assure you, though, that pain and suffering will not get the final word. There's all kinds of things about evil and pain and disappointment that I still question. I suspect that you question. But I pray that pain and suffering would never make you question the character of God. He is good all the time. So good, in fact. He's just trying to rescue us from a broken world. So come, Lord Jesus, come. Heal our broken world. Come and make things right. I, for one, just affirm your goodness to me, God. You've been so good to me. All I can do is just testify to your goodness. And for those today who have a wrong perception of you, um, would you somehow supernaturally reveal the true nature of your goodness to them, I pray. For those who had a horrible earthly father and have even projected onto you the image of this bad father experience, would you somehow reveal to them the perfect loving, lovesick Father that you are. Pray this in your name. Sometimes a song um, can preach a message better than a sermon. And I've asked the team to introduce this song to you today. It won't be unfamiliar to many of you, but just, just sit for a bit and let it minister to you. And at some point, I think you'll be asked to stand and and join in.